Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come before you, and we're just deeply grateful for the gifts that you pour out. God, we thank you for the gift of music, and we thank you for the talents of those who can lead us in worship, in voice, and in instrument. We thank you for the way that it lifts our hearts and causes our souls to know the richness of your mercy. Father, thank you for things as simple as candles and Christmas lights to remind us of the light come into the dark world. Thank you for little children. Thank you for their simple faith and the way that they inspire us and set an example for us. And Father, now as we come before your word, we thank you for this ancient book that is still alive and well. And we pray that these words would move us We pray that your Holy Spirit would open our hearts and our minds to understand why it is that you would say these things to us right now, in this time, in this place. Peel away the darkness, God. Shine your light and let us be amazed by its brilliance. Father, not my words, but yours. Let them do their work in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, welcome again to those who may be with us the first time um, this morning. If you're not familiar with our routine, we tend to walk through Scripture bit by bit. And so, as Pastor Jesse said, we've been walking through the book of Malachi the last few weeks, and we will do that for the next couple of weeks, culminating in the arrival, the advent of Jesus Christ. And we find ourselves this morning in Malachi chapter 2, and I'm going to read our passage for us in in just a few minutes, but before I do that, just by way of introduction, in case you missed the first couple of weeks, in case you're not familiar, Malachi was a, a prophet who came to the nation of Israel And he's unique because he was the last voice that the nation heard before 400 years of silence. And at the end of that 400 years, the next voice that they would hear would be the voice of the angels proclaiming to Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, and to Mary and Joseph of the arrival, of the advent of the Savior. And so Malachi has this unique position of coming to the nation and laying the groundwork for what that message will unfold. And I I want you to understand that because what I want you to understand is that the groundwork for the arrival of the light of Jesus Christ into the world is a foundation of darkness. What, uh, what Jesse shared earlier is so appropriate. 
that we are in a dark place and we need the light of the gospel and we will see that this morning. And Malachi, he came before Jesus. And so all he could do was to, to point out the darkness that the, surrounded the people and point to the horizon and say, watch, because the light will dawn. And he could give glimmers and he could give little fragments to say, it's coming, we can see it. But we this morning are in a position to be able to look backwards and, and to say, we've seen it, we know it. And so we've heard so far about how the people of Malachi's day were living in darkness in the way that they worshipped God. And, and living in darkness in the way that they tried to offer sacrifices and atone for their sins. And, and living in, in darkness in all sorts of, of manner. And I'm afraid that some of those things are hard for us to grasp. We don't have priests the way that they did. We don't have offerings the way that they did. We don't go to temples the way that they did. And so some of that is foreign and it's hard to get in the mindset of what does that look like. And so this morning we'll hit a little closer to home. And I'll just prepare you for that now. But my goal is that by walking with Malachi through this dark place, that at the end of this, we will be amazed, even overwhelmed with the brilliant light of the arrival of Jesus Christ. So with that goal... I'm going to read for us Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 through 16. For those that like to follow along, you can, you can do that with me. And then after I've read it, we're going to just kind of walk through bit by bit and let God's Word do its work in us. Malachi says this to the people, Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then? Are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless. An abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because He no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does He not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion, your wife, by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife, but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit. Do not be faithless. 
So some of these words are familiar to us. Some of these are passages we hear bantied about in our modern evangelical circles in different ways and in different purpose, with different purposes. Set that aside for just a minute. What I really want to do is I really want to focus on why these words, before the dawning of Christ, what would the prophet have to say to the people who would have heard him? When I, when I shared with someone a couple of weeks ago that I was preaching in this particular passage, and I said, you know, it's that part in Malachi that talks about marriage and divorce and all that. The, the response I got was, oh yeah, but that's not really about marriage and divorce, right? Because, you know, it's prophecy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sorry, but it really is about marriage and divorce. Um, prophecy is a really interesting part of Scripture because so often prophecy has incredibly deep, rich meaning, and so often it says things on multiple layers at the same time. But prophecy never hides the ball. When it says it's about marriage and divorce, it really is about marriage and divorce. Now, it's about more than marriage and divorce, don't get me wrong, but it's not about less. So we, we have to, before we dive into the deep meaning of what this says, we have to at least deal with what it says on the surface, at face value. And at face value, it really says two things. It says, God grieves because people are taking spouses for themselves who worship other gods. And it says that God also grieves because once they were married, they weren't remaining faithful to the spouses that they had. That's what it says. And we're going to unfold that a little bit. And I think as we unfold it, we will start to hear the deeper meaning of the passage. And I would offer this, potentially. Faithful devotion brings glory to Christ and joy to His people. Faithful devotion brings glory to Christ and joy to His people. You'll hear that again. You might hear it more than you want. But first, I have to ask a question. Some of you, I'm worried. So I'm going to ask if you're listening. Because I'm concerned that just as I began to read about marriage and divorce, there are some ears that already have tuned me out. And I'm concerned because this is a familiar passage to some of us. And some of us have decided, well, I'm not married, so this isn't for me. It is. And some of us have said already, I am married, and uh, nothing in my situation is going to change, so I'm good. Some are very happily married. Some not so. Some of us used to be married, and they're getting rather tired of hearing people talk about marriage and divorce. Wherever you sit right now in that spectrum, I would just ask for your patience. This was a word given to the nation of Israel, but not only to the nation of Israel. And we know that from the opening verse. Have we not all one Father? Has not God created us? And so the category of people that God is addressing this morning is rather broad. Have we not all one Father? Did not God create every one of us? And that being the case, this is a passage that all of us can pay attention to. 
And so as our Father has something to say, I would just encourage you, let's walk together on this little journey for the next several minutes, and it's going to be a journey through the darkness, looking for that glimmer of dawn on the horizon. The darkness begins in verse 11. Judah has been faithless. An abomination has been committed in Israel and Jerusalem. For thousands of years, God had been reminding His people, Israel. This was a nation that had been created by God for Himself. To be special, to be different, to be called out from the world. And He'd been reminding His people for thousands of years of many things, but this one thing that's helpful for us today. My people... You are special. Do not marry into the gods of this world because I'm your God. And so when he took the nation out of Egypt and sent them to the promised land, he said, you're going to encounter lots of things along the way and some of those things will be in the form of beautiful women that you will want to marry. Do not because they do not know me. God sets only one boundary here. He doesn't say don't marry outside your race or your ethnic background or your economic status or your family status or what. He doesn't say any of those things. One thing, your faith. You know me as your God, so marry others who know me. And if we need it, an example of this gone wrong, and there are many, we need look no further than the one who wrote the book on marriage, Solomon. King Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, wrote the one book of the Bible that is all about romance. And yet he got this wrong. And we know that because in the book of 1 Kings, God says, Solomon was tempted by the women of foreign lands and foreign gods. And he gave in to that temptation and he took them as his wives. And then their foreign gods led him astray. The wisest man who lived, who wrote scripture. Why is this so important? Consider Solomon and how it led him astray. But more than that, consider God's perspective on marriage. What does he have to say here? Well, in verse 11, he says this thing about marriage wrongfully done, it's not a slight offense. It's not a thing I wish hadn't happened. It's an abomination. It's profaning the sanctuary of the Lord. Verse 12 is Micah's prayer that anyone who does this be destroyed. This is serious stuff. Because from God's perspective, marriage is not a contract, is not just a casual agreement, is not a convenience. From God's perspective, marriage is one man, one woman, woven together into one new thing. One. And so, we can't take one man from one God, 
and one woman from a different God and weave them together and get that same unity. And so our first step into the the darkness that surrounded the people of Israel is to, to recognize that God has this very high view of what it means to take a spouse. And it's not about you, it's about Him. It's about that God who created you and who made you and who gave us this gift that is marriage. But God does not stop yet. He's got a second charge to level. And so our next step through this dark place is to consider what God would say in the following verses. In verse 13, He says, This second thing you do, as if the first weren't enough, because I, I, I can imagine at least that this would be a great opportunity for those in Israel who probably were little like me, who would stand up and say, yeah, you did it wrong. You didn't marry well. I did. And so God doesn't leave us off the hook. He says, no, there's another problem. Because those of you who are married, whether you married well or didn't marry well, You've become faithless to your spouse. Verse 14, the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless. And so, God continues on this discussion about what it looks like from his perspective, what marriage, that is, looks like from his perspective. And it's true it involves one man and one woman woven together, but it's not just one man and one woman woven together. See, in verse 15, God explains, He says, He makes them one. That is, God makes them one with a portion of their spirit, of the spirit in their union. So so God somehow takes this one plus one and adds yet one more to get one. Ecclesiastes talks about the cord of three strands that is not easily broken. Yes, two are better than one, but three, that's the best yet. Because from God's perspective, marriage is not just a physical union, although it is that. It's a spiritual union. It's the joining of one soul with God and another soul with God. And in that joining together. You think about it, we now know, looking back, because of what Jesus taught, that when we come to faith in Christ, when He blesses us with salvation and eternal life, He doesn't just leave us here on His own, He he sends the Holy Spirit to indwell us, right? The Spirit of God lives in us when we are regenerated into new life. And so for us now to think about this spiritual union... You have the Holy Spirit living in you. And so, when you join together with another who has the Holy Spirit living inside, that Holy Spirit provides the unity that should lay the foundation for everything that comes after that. One man, one woman, one God. And God says, 
My people, you are walking in darkness because you don't understand this. Because you don't understand the union that is created and so you cast it off. So you throw it aside. Verse 16. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence. There it is. Divorce. Okay, time out. If I could read the minds around the room, I'm guessing we've got some fire and brimstoners here. You're looking for the both barrel approach to divorce. It's wrong. You can't do it. God hates it. It's evil. And you're hoping this is where it's going to come. But then you've got some others in the room that we need to be mindful of. We've got those that are already building the walls in their minds. They've already felt the weight of guilt and doubt and accusation. And they're really just tired of it. And so they're hoping that's not where this is going. And then we've got those that are trying to take the more modern approach and they're already building the logical argument that they're going to come up and talk to me about when this is all over, about why divorce in our society is okay compared to divorce in an ancient society of Hebrews and how it was different then and it's different now. And, <laughs> then there's one or two of you out there, probably my closest friends, who are just anxious to see me squirm under the most controversial verse in Malachi. <laughs> I love you too. Um, <laughs> Some of you have a footnote. If you've been reading along in your translation, you may have a footnote. And it tells you that there is a translation issue in this verse. And there is, because different people down through the centuries have tried to translate it a couple different ways. And the one that usually gets bantied about is the one that includes the phrase, God hates divorce. And it may be there footnoted in your, in your Bible. I'm not a Hebrew expert. I'm not a linguistic scholar. I read this much. Um, I don't think that's the better translation. I think the one that I read is the better translation. But I don't think that really answers the question anyway. When we get to this verse, as we read, we so often say, does God hate divorce? Is that true? And I don't think it's the translation that causes the grief. I think it's the answer that causes the grief. And so I'm going to answer that with a very strong, firm, unequivocal, yes, asterisk. <laughs> yes, I believe God does hate divorce. Why? Because verse 16 says, For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her covers his garment with violence. Divorce is a violent thing. If marriage is this union between man, woman, and God, if God has put these people together to be one for this lifetime, then any rending of that union is violent, it's painful, it's hurtful. God doesn't like any kind of unjust violence. God hates all of it. The mistake that we make is that we think somehow this notion that God hates divorce is different than God hating anything else. I've got news for you. There's a lot of things God hates. I'm not a Hebrew expert, but I do know how to look up things in my Bible. 
You don't need to be a Hebrew expert to read God hates. These are the right translations, and I'll just give you a quick rundown. God hates haughty eyes, lying tongues, hands that shed innocent blood. God hates false witness. That's lying. God hates festivals with no heart of worship. God hates arrogance. Ow. Psalm chapter 5, if you need to verify that one on your own. Does God hate divorce? Sure. Does God hate the things that I have done? Yes. And sadly, our church has this track record that looks miserable. On the one hand, the divorce rate inside and outside the Christian church is the same. We claim to be God's people, unique, set apart, and yet, when it comes to divorce, we look just like everybody else walking the streets. And, and on the other hand, we've decided somehow that divorce, in some circles anyway, is this unforgivable sin that can't be dealt with. And the reality is, divorce, though it is something God hates, is sometimes necessary. Just like there are times when physical violence is necessary. Because the harm that it prevents is greater than the harm it does. We don't go to war because God loves war. We go to war because innocent people are dying. And someone needs to help them. We don't do drastic surgery on the human body because we want to tear it apart. It does violence. But we do it to save life. Sometimes violence is necessary. Sometimes we want to look back and say, no, divorce isn't necessary. Divorce is somewhere in this category just above the seven deadly sins, but just below Judas' kiss of betrayal. And so by, the, by putting it there, we've elevated it. What we've actually done when we do that is we've changed the translation from God hates divorce to God hates anyone who is divorced. That's wrong. That's wrong. And what we've done, and when I say we, I mean we, We've taken this wrong doctrine of divorce and we've used it to force women to endure all sorts of violence in the name of preserving marriage. And we've sacrificed our sisters on the altar of our own self-righteousness. Hmm. Maybe Israel's darkness isn't so, that, so different from our own. You know, as I was meditating on this, as I spent time just trying to let the Word of God bounce around and do its work in my own mind, in my own heart, I realized that, yes, on the surface, God says, don't marry people who don't know me. And yes, He says, I don't want you to get divorced. You need to remain faithful to the one you're married to. But I realized that that's actually 
too surface level because it misses the word that God tries to emphasize. Little technique, you want to understand a passage of scripture, look for the words that are repeated. Divorce gets the attention of this passage, but that's not the word that gets repeated. It's only brought up once. What's the word that gets repeated? Faithless. Faithless. Are we faithful in the way that we marry, in the way that we stay married, in the way that we treat not only our spouses, but one another? Are we faithful? Or like those in Israel at Malachi's time, are we faithless? I'll propose it again. Faithful devotion brings glory to Christ and joy to His people. And I grieve because I am faithless. I've gone to my wife to confess that I've sinned against her. Anger, lust, selfishness, all of it. I've had to go to my children to say I've sinned against them in all of those same ways and more. I've had to go to my brothers and sisters, some of you here, because I... I am not faithful. So, so how do I bring to you a sermon that says faithful devotion brings glory to Christ and joy to His people and at the same time, I recognize I can't be faithful enough to do that. I can't. Well, it's because the faithful devotion isn't mine. See, this is where the light dawns. This is where we're surrounded by the dark night of who sinful people really are. And we look to the horizon and we say, God, show us a glimmer. And Malachi says, the light is coming. You will see it one day. It will dawn. Watch for it. I say, the light has come. The light has come and we've sung of it this morning. We see the brilliance of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We see that to all who receive Him, who believe in His name, He gives the right to become children of God. So how do we get from the darkness of Malachi to the light of the gospel? By faithful devotion, not ours, His. We look backwards. We look back beyond the cross, back beyond Malachi, back beyond Solomon, back to the garden. And we see that when God instituted marriage, this covenant that He speaks of, it was for a purpose. Malachi says it. To create godly offspring. To put forth a seed. 
And time and again, if we had time, I'd walk you down through all of the history of Israel and see over and over again how God keeps renewing, how God keeps sustaining, how God says, my seed will not fail. Godly offspring will be produced. And we get through Malachi and through the 400 years and the seed arrives and it's Jesus. Faithful devotion brings glory to Christ and joy to his people. Not my faithful devotion. That's frail. That's weak. God's faithful devotion. Because that has sustained his people from the dawn of time until now. God does not give up on his people when they fall short. God did not say to the nation of Israel, you have blown it, you are done. No, God said, I will send you a prophet to remind you where we're going and get you there. God does not give up on us because we are faithless. He says, no, I have sent my son and he is sufficient for your faithlessness to make you faithful again. And so, of all the different positions that we might be sitting in this morning, wherever we are, divorced, feeling the pain of guilt or the uncertainty of where you stand with God, rejoice. Rejoice with the woman at the well who came and had five husbands and still was living with a man not her husband and who Christ chose among them all the people, to give the gospel and to take it back to her community. The living water of grace that she received is still being poured out. Not divorced, but married. Go back to Ephesians 5. We were just there a few weeks ago. What does it look like to have redeemed people put together in this union? It should look like a picture of Christ and the church. Your marriage isn't there. It's okay. God is faithful. You have the tools that you need. You have the gospel message. You have the Savior that takes away the sin of the world. Apply it. I'm married to one who doesn't know Jesus. Praise God. Shine the light of the gospel in your home. Apostle Paul says, don't leave. Let God work through you. I'm not married. Okay. First, devote yourself to that commitment that if you will be married one day, it will be to one who knows your Lord. But in the meantime, hold marriage in high esteem. How do you treat other people who are not married? Because they're going to be married one day. How do you treat people that you, you know that are married? Pray for them. It's hard. We're supposed to reflect the gospel to the world in our marriages. That's not an easy thing to do. Pray for your brothers and sisters that are married. Help them to be accountable. I have single friends that are close to me. I want them to come to me and say, you know, 
you got this thing going on in your home. Doesn't look so much like Jesus. I need that. It's okay. Most of all, you're single this morning. I don't care if you're two or 102. You're single this morning. Know this. Please know this. You are not made complete by a spouse. You can want a spouse. That's great. You're not made complete by a spouse. You're made complete by Christ. Perhaps you're in any of those categories, single, married, divorced, but you've been unfaithful. You're in the category that Malachi was addressing, the faithless. Could be in word, could be in thought, could be in deed, could be once, could be over and over again. For the faithless among us, I have a new memory verse. It's not one we teach very often in Sunday school. I don't know if I've ever taught this one in Sunday school. Matthew chapter 1, verse 6. You ever memorized a verse out of a genealogy before? This is the verse for the faithless among us. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. The faithlessness of David, who took a woman who was not his wife, by force, and did things with her that ought not to be done, and then tried to cover up his sin by killing, murdering her husband. Same David, right here, in the genealogy of our Savior. Not only that... That relationship is in the genealogy of our Savior. If God can take that and bring His light into the world through that, your faithlessness, He's got it covered. He's got it covered. Covered by the blood of the Savior, the one who came into the world to deal with our faithlessness. And so... We stand here on the other side of the dawning. And this this dim faint of a light that Malachi pointed to and said, as we are faithless, we need to look to the one who will be faithful. We have seen it. We celebrate it. We light candles because when we are faithless, and we are, We run to the one who is faithful, who can turn our darkness into light. Father, I I am overwhelmed with how amazing it could be that you would do this thing. That you would take my acts of faithlessness and pour over them the blood of Christ, to make them clean as snow. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters here this morning who have listened to this, and I just ask God this one thing, that you would show them the light of Jesus. I pray, God, 
that your faithful devotion would bring glory to Christ through us and that in that faithful devotion we would find joy that we, your people, would rejoice. Amen. For joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K I S H Bible.org.